Welcome to Memory and Top 40 Music, where we relive our best memories through the greatest songs ever recorded. I'm Spoken Joe Williams. Thanks for coming along as we revisit the top of the pop charts through the eyes of history. And in this episode, we're looking at the top 10 songs from October 28, 1962, the day that concluded the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis was a 13-day standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was political and military brinksmanship at its most tense and terrifying. The crisis involved the presence of nuclear-armed Soviet missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles from the shores of the United States. The Cold War defined the period of tension between the world's two superpowers, starting sometime following the end of the Second World War, though there is no precise date of the start of the Cold War. A quick review of post-war history reminds us that Germany had been divided. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill spoke of the Iron Curtain which had descended on Europe. Via the Truman Doctrine, the U.S. promised to assist any country facing a takeover by communists. The Berlin airlift brought food to residents of West Berlin, access to which had been cut off by the Soviets. NATO was formed, creating a mutual defense agreement between a number of European and North American countries. Conversely, the Soviets and its satellite states signed the Warsaw Pact. The Korean War, the space race, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the construction of the Berlin Wall. All of these events over the period of roughly 15 years. Before we go on with the Cuban Missile Crisis story, let's kick off our countdown from October 28, 1962. And of course, we'll get our countdown started with the number 10 song for the week. The song, down from number 5 last week, is I Remember You, and it's by Frank Ifield. Ifield was born in England, and when he was 9, his family moved to Australia. Young Frank listened to hillbilly music, as it was then called, and learned to yodel. He incorporated that yodeling into a lot of his music. By the late 1950s, Ifield was hitting the top of the charts in Australia and New Zealand. Ifield charted with Lucky Devil in the UK in 1960, and then in 1962 he released I Remember You. It was number one in England for seven weeks and was a number five hit on the American charts. In fact, it spent the last two weeks at number five prior to this week at number ten, its last of four weeks in the top ten. I Remember You was also a number one hit on the adult contemporary charts. I Remember You was the only song Ifield placed on the Billboard Top 40. He did have three other songs in the Hot 100, the highest of those being Love Sick Blues, which got to number 44 in January 1963. Love Sick Blues was a remake of the song first recorded by Hank Williams. I Remember You was the first of four number one songs Ifield had in England, in fact, he was one of the most successful recording artists in England in the early 1960s. One of Ifield's goals was achieved in 1964 when he played the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. And on the 28th of October 1962, Frank Ifield was at number 10 with I Remember You. I'm Spoken Joe Williams and you're listening to Memory and Top 40 Music. Don't forget to listen to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. All of this week's top 10 songs are included, along with a number of extras for your enjoyment. And remember, the free Spotify account is all you really need. Right now, we're looking at the week of October 28, 1962, the day the Cuban Missile Crisis ended. 
When Fidel Castro led the revolution and took over Cuba in 1959, he aligned himself with the Soviet Union. The failed Bay of Pigs invasion, in which a U.S.-backed paramilitary group attempted to invade Cuba in April 1961, strengthened the bond between Cuban Prime Minister Castro and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Castro asked if the Soviets would place nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba to deter any further invasions, and in the summer of 1962, construction began on missile launch facilities just 90 miles from Florida. Being able to place missiles so close to the U.S. was one way for the Soviets to try to balance what was believed to be the Americans' superior first-strike capability. Additionally, Khrushchev wanted the U.S. to give up West Berlin to the Soviets in exchange for removing his missiles from Cuba. Western control of a portion of Berlin was a much more significant issue to Khrushchev than Cuba. The Soviets repeatedly denied that it intended to place offensive nuclear missiles in Cuba, but U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency analysts determined that Cuban surface-to-air missile sites were arranged in a similar pattern to those which the Soviets used to protect its intercontinental ballistic missile bases. Then, American U-2 spy planes provided the photographs proving the presence of medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, and they were pointed at the United States. The great Johnny Mathis resides in the number nine spot this week with Gina. This was the first of five weeks Gina would spend in the top ten, only its third week in the top 40. The song jumped up 11 spots from number 20, where it sat last week. It would reach its peak on November 17th at the number six position. Johnny Mathis had 16 top 40 hits over his illustrious career, the very first being Wonderful Wonderful in 1957. Gina was one of his five top ten hits, with one of those, a duet with Denise Williams, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late, going all the way to number one in June 1978. Gina was written by Leon Carr and Paul Vance. Carr wrote for many top-name artists, including Vic Damone, Tom Jones, Dean Martin, Teresa Brewer, and, of course, Johnny Mathis. He also wrote a few jingles you might remember. Sometimes you feel like a nut for Mounds Candy and see the USA in your Chevrolet. Vance wrote or co-wrote hits like Catch a Falling Star, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, Playground in My Mind, and the top 10 hit by the Cufflinks in 1969, Tracy. Tracy, you're going to be happy with me. I'll build a world around you. Hold me close, Tracy. Never, never, ever let me go. Johnny Mathis was also a great athlete. Planning to become an English and phys ed teacher, Mathis enrolled at what is today San Francisco State University. One day in 1954, Mathis set a high jump record at six foot five and a half inches, only two inches short of the Olympic record at the time. Mathis also got a job singing at a local club where he was discovered by George Avakian, then head of Jazz A&R at Columbia Records. In 1956, Mathis was invited to participate in the Olympic trials in advance of that summer's Olympic Games in Australia. At the same time, he was also invited to New York to prepare for his first recording session with Columbia. Deciding on the singing career, Mathis relinquished his chance to become a member of the U.S. Olympic track and field team and instead went to New York to record his first album. 
Johnny Mathis has sold well over 360 million records worldwide and was the third biggest selling artist of the 20th century after Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. A native of Texas, Mathis is also inextricably linked with Christmas as a result of his incredibly popular 1958 album, Merry Christmas, which included Oh Holy Night and Winter Wonderland. Yeah, I can hear Mathis singing both those songs when just mentioning the titles. His album, Johnny's Greatest Hits, released in 1958, spent 490 consecutive weeks, that's nine and a half years, on the Billboard album charts. It was the record holder in that category until Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon surpassed it in October 1983. At one point, Mathis had five albums on the Billboard album chart at the same time. Only Sinatra and Barry Manilow have joined Mathis with that accomplishment. In 2003, Mathis received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and has three songs in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Chances are... Misty, and It's Not For Me To Say. At number 9, Johnny Mathis and Gina. On October 16, 1962, President Kennedy was informed of the presence of the missiles in Cuba. Day 1 of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That evening, Kennedy met with his nine-member National Security Council and five other advisors, the president and this group, to be known as the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or EXCOM, grappled day and night over this intense and potential history-altering crisis for the next two weeks. EXCOM laid out seven possible courses of action. These ran the gamut from do-nothing, to an invasion, to a naval blockade. In spite of advice to launch a full invasion of Cuba, President Kennedy did not agree, arguing that even if the Soviets did not respond in Cuba, they would certainly take action in Berlin. Plans for a blockade were gaining support, though according to international law, a blockade was an act of war. The U.S. obtained the approval of the members of the Organization of American States as the blockade would take place in international waters, and the terminology was changed to a quarantine of offensive weapons as opposed to a blockade of all materials. On October 22nd, congressional leaders were informed of the quarantine plan, and they demanded stronger military action. That evening, President Kennedy, in a televised nationwide address, informed the American people of the Soviet missiles and announced the policy that any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere, would be regarded as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. To halt the offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment being shipped to Cuba would commence, and any ship bound for Cuba found to contain offensive weapons in its cargo would be turned back. At the same time, U.S. military forces were placed on DEFCON 3, the mid-tier of five defensive readiness conditions. The entire world watched and waited to see what would happen. It was front-page news day after day around the globe. Schoolchildren went through drills, hiding under their desks in case of an attack. Parents planned where to go and what to do if war broke out. The Soviets warned that outright piracy would lead to war and stated the Soviet Union viewed the blockade as an act of aggression and their ships would be instructed to ignore it. On October 24th, 
Soviet ships approached the U.S. naval vessels enforcing the quarantine, but they halted shortly before reaching the blockade. Let's take a break from the world crisis and turn back to our countdown. Sharing horizons that are new to us, watching the signs along the way, talking it over just the two of us, listening to the song at number eight together. Nat King Cole is number eight on our countdown this week with his huge hit Ramblin' Rose. This song spent 13 weeks in the top 40, eight of those in the top 10. Ramblin' Rose peaked at number two for two weeks in September 1962. This week it was down one position in the countdown. Nat King Cole is one of the best known and most beloved singers of all time. The Montgomery, Alabama native got his start playing the piano, but it was his romantic baritone voice that brought him to fame. Cole formed the King Cole Swingsters with guitarists Oscar Moore and bass player Wesley Prince. The name coming from the nursery rhyme, Old King Cole was a merry old soul. They later switched the name to the King Cole Trio, and they had their first chart hit with 1943's That Ain't Right. The next year, they scored big with Straighten Up and Fly Right. Cole's solo career blossomed in the 1950s with hits like Unforgettable. Cole placed 72 songs in the top 40 over his career. He hit number one four times. I Love You for Sentimental Reasons in 1947, Nature Boy in 1948, Mona Lisa in 1950, and Too Young in 1951. He had 17 other top 10 hits, the last of those being 1963's number six hit, Those Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer. Cole is widely credited with being the first African-American to host a TV variety show. The Nat King Cole Show debuted on November 5, 1962. Later, Cole wrote, For 13 months, I was the Jackie Robinson of television. Nat King Cole died in February 1965 of lung cancer at the age of 45. Honorary pallbearers at his funeral included Robert F. Kennedy, Count Basie, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Johnny Mathis, Danny Thomas, and George Burns, with Jack Benny delivering the eulogy. Cole's popularity has not waned. His version of The Christmas Song is a classic, and he reappeared in the top 40 26 years after his death with a crafted duet of Unforgettable with daughter Natalie Cole. The great Nat King Cole at number 8 on October 28, 1962, and Ramblin' Rose. I'm Joe Williams, and you're listening to Memory and Top 40 Music, and we're taking a walk through the top of the chart from October 28, 1962. On October 25th, at an emergency meeting of the United Nations Security Council, U.S. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson challenged the Soviet ambassador to admit the missile's existence. He refused to do so. On October 26th, the U.S. raised its readiness level to DEFCON 2. For the only confirmed time in U.S. history, B-52 bombers went on continuous airborne alert, one indication of the unprecedented war readiness footing the U.S. was on. Nuclear-armed B-52s were dispatched to points within striking distance of the Soviet Union. ICBMs were on ready alert. And the Soviets had miscalculated. They had not anticipated the actions of the Kennedy administration. 
They expected negotiations or a U.S. invasion of Cuba, which would provide the excuse the Soviets sought to take aggressive action in Germany. That evening, a letter was received at the White House from Khrushchev with an offer to declare ships bound for Cuba were not carrying armaments if the U.S. would declare it would not invade Cuba. That done, Khrushchev messaged, the need for military specialists in Cuba would disappear. The next morning, Moscow offered a different deal, which included the U.S. removing Jupiter missiles from Italy and Turkey. However, that same morning, a U.S. aircraft was shot down by a missile launched from Cuba, killing the U.S. Air Force pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson. The U.S. had claimed it would attack should the Soviets shoot American aircraft. Against advice, President Kennedy held off on the attack, but the expectation at the moment was for a military confrontation by October 30th, even possibly as early as the 29th. We'll get back to the story of this crisis in just a moment, but first, Dickie Lee and his song Patches is in the number 7 slot this week, down one place from last week. When you hear it on our companion Spotify playlist, you'll know immediately this song is not the same Patches, which became a top 10 hit for Clarence Carter in 1970. No, Dickie Lee's Patches is a waltz, telling the story of a couple of teenagers in love whose parents wouldn't allow the teens to be together. It was a controversial song, as it involves the theme of teenage suicide, and the song was consequently banned by some radio stations. In spite of the ban, the song still became a million-seller. Later on, Dickie Lee became a regular on the country music charts, landing 17 songs in the country top 40, most of those in the 1970s. These included the number one hit, Rocky, which pop fans will remember as a hit by Austin Roberts in 1975. In November 75, just a month after Austin Roberts peaked at number nine on the pop charts with his version of Rocky, Dickie Lee took it to number one on the country charts. His other big country hits included Neverending Song of Love, Angels, Roses, and Rain, and 9,999,999 Tears. Lee also had significant success as a songwriter, with some of his songs recorded by George Jones, Elvis, Emmylou Harris, George Strait, Charlie Pride, and Reba McIntyre. Lee is an inductee in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Patches was the biggest song of Lee's pop career. It spent 11 weeks in the top 40 in 1962, seven of those in the top 10. It peaked for two non-consecutive weeks at number six earlier in October. This was one of three top 40 pop hits in his career, the others being I Saw Linda Yesterday in 1963 and Laurie Strange Things Happen in 1965. Patches by Dickie Lee at number six on October 28th, 1962. Returning now to the Cuban Missile Crisis, as the U.S. responded to the first Soviet offer, plans for airstrikes on the missile sites, in addition to Cuban economic and petroleum storage targets, were drawn up, along with plans for how to respond to the Soviet Union in Europe. Shortly after midnight on October 27th, the U.S. informed NATO that the U.S. might find it necessary to take military action within a very short time. And at 6 a.m., the CIA reported that the missiles in Cuba were operational and ready for launch. That same day, Castro communicated to Khrushchev and urged him to use nuclear weapons as a response to an attack on Cuba. 
In secret negotiations, President Kennedy agreed to move missiles from Turkey and southern Italy, an aspect of the agreement which was not made public at the time. The next morning, October 28th, Kennedy was informed that Khrushchev would accept the Cuba for Turkey missile swap and the crisis which put the world on the brink of a large-scale war between the U.S. and the Soviets, possibly nuclear war, had been averted. In time, the missiles were dismantled, the blockade was lifted, the weapons were removed from Cuba, and the American missiles in Turkey were disassembled, and the world could breathe a sigh of relief. So we just talked about Dickie Lee at number 7, and we have another Lee at number 6 this week. This is Brenda Lee, and all alone am I. Brenda Lee was one of the most successful music stars of the 1960s. Her chart performance trailed only Elvis, the Beatles, and Ray Charles. While these days she may be best remembered for rocking around the Christmas tree, that hardly does justice to all she accomplished. Though hard to imagine, this Georgia native won a talent contest at the age of three. When she was 10, Brenda Lee met country music star Red Foley, father-in-law of Pat Boone. Lee appeared on Foley's Ozark Jubilee TV show, and her 4'9 height and powerful voice earned her the nickname Little Miss Dynamite. Brenda Lee toured with Patsy Cline, Mel Tillis, and George Jones. By the time she was 12, she had performed at the Grand Ole Opry and in Las Vegas. While her first two singles didn't make the top 40, her next one did. Sweet Nothings was a number four hit on the Billboard chart and reached number three on Cashbox in June 1960. She followed that up with a number one hit record, I'm Sorry. In spite of her start, Brenda Lee was marketed exclusively as a pop star, and she wasn't again on the country charts until February 1969 when she hit with Johnny One Time. Brenda Lee was a big star on the international stage as well. She was a chart favorite in the United Kingdom, and when she appeared in Hamburg, Germany, a foursome which went by the name The Beatles opened for her. Here's another interesting tidbit. Lee's Is It True, which made it to number 17 in November 1964, featured a young 20-year-old guitarist named Jimmy Page, who would go on to some big things with a band he founded called Led Zeppelin. Brenda Lee charted a total of 82 songs in her career. She had 29 top 40 pop hits. Those included 12 top 10 songs, and among those were her two number ones, I'm Sorry and I Want to Be Wanted. Her last pop top 40 hit was 1967's Ride, Ride, Ride. Then the country hits began to flow. By the time Brenda Lee was on the country top 40 for the final time in 1984, a duet with George Jones, Hallelujah, I Love You So!, she had amassed 17 top 40 appearances on the country chart, and those included seven top 10 songs. Her highest charting country song was Big Four Poster Bed, a number four hit in 1974. I guess I should clarify one thing. Brenda Lee's last new release to appear in the top 40 on the pop charts was Ride, 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 but her beloved recording of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree has appeared in the top 40 four different times since it first did it in 1960, when it got as high as number 14. In fact, she's been in the top 40 each of the last three years with Rocket Around the Christmas Tree, most recently having been as high as number 30 on January 3rd, 2018. Brenda Lee is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and the Rockabilly Hall of Fame. 
By the way, she's the only woman to have a place in both the Rock and Country Halls of Fame. She also received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. This week, All Alone Am I made a nine-place leap into the top ten, the first of seven weeks the song would spend in the top ten. It would reach its chart peak of number three on November 10th, and then again two weeks later on November 24th, with a week at number four sandwiched in between. Altogether, All Alone Am I would spend 12 weeks in the top 40. Brenda Lee, who is still active in country music circles today, had the number six hit, All Alone Am I, on October 28, 1962. The Cuban Missile Crisis led to the creation of a hotline between Washington and Moscow, enabling direct communications between the capitals of the two superpowers. Major Rudolf Anderson was the sole U.S. combat casualty of the crisis. How serious was this crisis? How close to nuclear war were we, especially on that Saturday, October 27th, when Major Anderson was shot down? As U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara later said, I thought it was the last Saturday I would ever see. Though the Cuban Missile Crisis may have been its peak, the Cold War was far from over. It would last nearly another 30 years. Just as there is no certain date of its start, there was no certain date of the Cold War's conclusion. Maybe it ended in 1989, with the end of communist rule in Central and Eastern Europe. Or maybe it ended when the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991. The players had changed, from President John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev and Fidel Castro, to Presidents Ronald Reagan and George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, Mikhail Gorbachev, Boris Yeltsin, and Pope John Paul II. Thirteen months after the Cuban Missile Crisis concluded, President Kennedy was killed. Then in October 1964, Khrushchev was removed from power, in part because the Soviets had lost face over the Cuban Missile Crisis, in particular because the removal of the U.S. missiles from Turkey, an important concession for Khrushchev, had still not been made public, and wouldn't be until just before Khrushchev's death in 1971. At number five in our countdown is the big hit song by the Four Seasons, Sherry. This song is down three places, but recently spent five weeks atop the charts in the number one position. Frankie Valli, Bob Gaudio, Tommy DeVito, and Nick Massey formed the Four Seasons and had tremendous chart success. In fact, they, along with the Beach Boys, may be the only American groups to have significant success on the music charts before and following the British Invasion. It's also worth mentioning the name Bob Crew, the producer who had a big hand in writing many of the group's hits, often with Bob Gaudio. After years of struggle, Sherry was the group's first hit and the first of five number one songs. The Four Seasons recorded Sherry without a record contract, but they used the recording to shop themselves around and VJ Records stepped up to sign the boys. The Four Seasons would ultimately rack up 30 top 40 hits. 15 of them went top 10, and as mentioned, they scored five number one hits. Sherry and Big Girls Don't Cry in 1962, Walk Like a Man in 1963, Ragdoll in 1964, and December 1963, Oh What a Night in 1976. And this chart success is even more remarkable when you recall the Four Seasons had a top 40 dry spell in between 1968's Will You Love Me Tomorrow and 1975's Who Loves You. 
The Four Seasons experienced and withstood many twists and turns and ups and downs, from royalty disputes and record label changes to extensive personnel changes, Valley's hearing problems, and accusations of ties to organized crime. Their story was pretty riveting and made for a very successful stage musical entitled Jersey Boys, later made into a movie directed by Clint Eastwood. The Broadway play Jersey Boys won four Tony Awards in 2006. The original Four Seasons lineup was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. And on the 28th of October 1962, the Four Seasons and their song Sherry held down the number five position on the charts. It's time for our Memory Jogger feature, and in this installment of Memory Jogger, we'll remember a few key music figures who recently passed. Bill Burkett, lead singer of the Vogues, died on March 1st at 75 years of age. It wasn't until the Vogues had their third hit record that Burkett figured the group was going places, and that's when he left his job at Westinghouse. The Vogues had eight top 40 hits, including four top tens, You're the One, Five O'Clock World, Turn Around, Look at Me, and My Special Angel. The Vogues were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2001. Craig Mack, a hip-hop star, died at the age of 41 on March 12th. Mack hit the top 40 twice, first in 1994 with the song Flava in Your Ear, which spent 20 weeks in the top 40, peaking at number 9 in November 1994. Then, Get Down spent two weeks at number 38 in March 1995. It's only two weeks in the top 40, but it did have a 20-week run in the Hot 100. Noki Edwards, bass player for The Ventures, died on March 12th at the age of 82. Edwards played guitar with country music superstar Buck Owens before being recruited for The Ventures. The Ventures were an instrumental band which charted 13 times, placing five of those songs in the top 40. Their highest charting song was 1960's Walk Don't Run, which hit number two. But they may be best known for the theme to the TV show Hawaii Five-O, which was a number four hit in 1969, though Edwards had left the band in 1968, only to return in 1972. The Ventures, including Noki Edwards, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2008. Country music singer and songwriter Kenny O'Dell died on March 27th at 73 years of age. He had one song in the top 40 pop charts, That Was Beautiful People, which reached number 38 in December 1967. He had four top 40 country hits, with the highest charting of those being Let's Shake Hands and Come Out Lovin' in 1978. As a songwriter, Odell penned big hits for Charlie Rich, Behind Closed Doors, and Mama He's Crazy for the Judds. Bill, Craig, Noki, and Kenny, thanks for the music and the memories. Now back to our countdown. Only Love Can Break a Heart by Gene Pitney leaps four spots into the number four position this week. Pitney was a multi-talented performer who played multiple musical instruments and wrote hit songs, in addition to the singing prowess he displayed on 16 top 40 hits. At the age of 21, Pitney signed on with Musicor Records, and his first single, I Want to Love My Life Away, spent a week in the top 40 at number 39 in February 1961. Later that year, he released what would be his first top 20 hit with the title track from the Kirk Douglas movie, Town Without Pity, which reached number 13 in early 1962. 
He followed that up with another song from the movies, except it wasn't in the film. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was a great film starring John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, and Gene Pitney sang the title song. And though it wasn't used in the movie, it did reach number four on the charts in June 1962. Pitney's next hit was Only Love Can Break a Heart, the tune at number four on this week's countdown. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and Only Love Can Break a Heart were both written by the talented and incredibly successful duo of Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Only Love Can Break a Heart spent 11 weeks in the top 40, and this week was a week away from its peak at number 2. Pitney scored two subsequent top 10 records, both in 1964, It Hurts to Be in Love and I'm Gonna Be Strong. He also found a good deal of success in the UK and Australia. His first top 20 success in England came in 1964 with another Bacharach David song, 24 Hours from Tulsa. Pitney played piano on the Rolling Stones debut album, and then he had a hit with That Girl Belongs to Yesterday, written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. That marked the first time a Jagger-Richards song went top 10 in England. It was also released in the U.S. and made it as high as number 49. Pitney finally reached the top of the charts in 1989. He did it in the U.K. with a song called Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart. That was a duet he recorded with Mark Almond, who was best known as part of the 1980s duo Soft Cell. You might remember Soft Cell's big hit, Tainted Love. I mentioned Pitney was a songwriter. Some of the songs he wrote for other artists included Ricky Nelson's big hit, Hello Mary Lou. Gene Pitney was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, and four years later, he died while on tour in the UK. Connecticut-born Gene Pitney at number four with Only Love Can Break a Heart. In addition to the memories these great songs bring back, let's see what was going on in the world in October 1962. We've, of course, discussed the riveting Cuban Missile Crisis. Brian Epstein signed a contract to manage the Beatles, and the lads from Liverpool released their first record, Love Me Do. James Meredith became the first black student at the University of Mississippi, Johnny Carson became the host of The Tonight Show. The first James Bond film was released. It was Dr. No, starring Sean Connery. Pope John XXIII convened the Second Vatican Council. Justice Byron White was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The New York Yankees became world champions for the 20th time, defeating the San Francisco Giants in a seven-game World Series. John Steinbeck was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. The top box office draw in October 1962 was The Longest Day, which told the story of D-Day and featured an all-star cast including Richard Burton, Sean Connery, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum, and John Wayne. Also in the movie were recording stars Paul Anka and Fabian. The top TV shows in the 1962-63 season were The Andy Griffith Show, The Lucy Show, Bonanza, The Red Skelton Show, Candid Camera, and, at number one, the Beverly Hillbillies. Notable births in October 1962 included Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, race driver Michael Andretti, Michael Balzari, better known as Flea, bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and boxing champ Evander Holyfield. Now back to our countdown. Holding steady at number three this week is the big dance hit for the Contours, Do You Love Me? One of the first African-American soul groups on the Motown label, the Contours needed two auditions to earn that record deal. 
After their first two records failed to chart, The Contours' Do You Love Me became a million-seller with Billy Gordon's voice providing the powerhouse vocals. Gordon and Joe Billingsley founded the group back in 1959 in Detroit, originally calling themselves The Blenders. By the way, when Gordon left the group a few years later, he was replaced by Joe Stubbs, brother of Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. Then, when Joe Stubbs left, his replacement was Dennis Edwards, who later joined The Temptations upon the departure of David Ruffin. Do You Love Me, which was written by Barry Gordy, spent 11 weeks in the top 40, five of those in the top 10. This is the second of three weeks the Contours would spend at number three with their biggest hit record. In fact, it was the only top 40 hit the group had. They had several other songs which knocked on the top 40 door, including Can You Do It, which got as high as number 41 in May 1964. Do You Love Me did hit number one on the R&B charts. In fact, the Contours had six other songs in the top 40 on the R&B charts. 26 years later, the Contours and Do You Love Me would be back on the charts following the song's inclusion in the film Dirty Dancing, spending another eight weeks in the top 40, peaking at number 11 in August 1988. The Contours, and their only top 40 hit on the pop charts, Do You Love Me, at number 3 this week. Looking over the balance of the chart, eight songs made their top 40 debut this week. They included Return to Sender by Elvis Presley at number 20, up 48 places from last week. And the highest debuting song in the 40 was the song at number 17, Big Girls Don't Cry by The Four Seasons, another song which made a massive leap in the charts, climbing 66 spots from last week. Appearing in the Hot 100 this week, with the very first of his 21 top 40 hits, was Herb Alpert, who, with the Tijuana Brass, was at number 95 with The Lonely Bull. At number 27 is Tony Bennett and I Left My Heart in San Francisco, down from number 19 last week, which unbelievably was its highest position on the Billboard chart. In addition to the Four Seasons' Sherry at number 5, there is one other former number 1 song in the Hot 100 this week. That is Sheila by Tommy Rowe at number 59. Future number 1s include Big Girls Don't Cry at number 17 and the song at number 2. So, let's get back to our countdown and get right to that song at number 2. Leapfrogging over the contours and making the jump up from number 4 last week to number 2 this week is He's a Rebel by the Crystals. You may recall we briefly discussed the Crystals on a previous Memory and Top 40 music episode as we remembered co-founder Barbara Alston upon her death in February 2018. The quintet formed in 1961 and signed with Phil Spector's record label. The Crystals had six top 40 hits in the early 60s. Three of those went top 10, He's a Rebel, Da Do Ron Ron, and Then He Kissed Me. Now, there was some drama and intrigue around He's a Rebel. Why? Well, it wasn't actually recorded by the Crystals. You see, Vicky Carr was about to release her own version of He's a Rebel, so Phil Spector wanted to get the Crystals record out quickly. But the New York-based group couldn't get to L.A. fast enough to satisfy the eccentric Spectre, so Darlene Love and her group, The Blossoms, recorded it instead. It was the recording by Darlene Love and The Blossoms which was released under the Crystal's name. He's a Rebel was a huge hit and, in fact, would ascend to the number one position for two weeks beginning November 3rd. 
Here is a quirk of music chart fate. He's a Rebel was written by Gene Pitney, who we discussed a few moments ago back at the number four slot with his record, Only Love Can Break a Heart. That Pitney record peaked at number two on November 3rd, when He's a Rebel was the number one song, meaning the Pitney written song, He's a Rebel, prevented the Pitney recorded song, Only Love Can Break a Heart, from hitting number one. That was Pitney's best chance of topping the Billboard pop charts, a feat he never did pull off. In total, He's a Rebel spent 12 weeks in the top 40, seven of those in the top 10, including those two weeks at number one. And if you're interested, the Vicky Carr version of He's a Rebel was released, but did not crack the Hot 100, getting only to number 115, though it did become a number five hit in Australia. Rolling Stone magazine ranked He's a Rebel at number 263 on its list of 500 greatest songs of all time, and Billboard listed the song at number 31 on its 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. At number two, He's a Rebel by The Crystals, though the voices you hear are Darlene Love and The Blossoms. Before we get to the song which held on to the number one position for a second consecutive week, let's review the top ten songs for October 28, 1962. Number ten, I Remember You by Frank Ifield. Number nine, Gina by Johnny Mathis. Number eight, Ramblin' Rose by Nat King Cole. Dickie Lee was at number seven with Patches. Brenda Lee was at number six with All Alone Am I. At number five, The Four Seasons and Sherry. Gene Pitney was at number four with Only Love Can Break a Heart. Number three, Do You Love Me by The Contours. Number two, He's a Rebel by The Crystals. And the number one song, again, for the week of October 28, 1962, was Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers. As if there weren't enough things going on to haunt the world's population, Halloween was just a few days away, and the very popular novelty song Monster Mash was flying high. Monster Mash was a spoof of the dance crazes of the time. The Monster Mash dance moves incorporated the footwork from the mashed potato dance, but with upper body monster-like gestures, think Frankenstein. Playing piano for the Crypt Kickers was Leon Russell, who went on to have his own Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recording career, highlighted by the songs Tightrope and Lady Blue, and singing back up on the song, Darling Love and the Blossoms. Bobby Pickett was 24 when this novelty song was released. He incorporated his Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi impersonations into the song. The song became a million seller and continues to be heard every year as Halloween approaches. In fact, Monster Mash showed up again on the charts twice more. In 1970, spending a few weeks on the Hot 100, and again in 1973, when it spent 12 weeks in the Top 40, getting as high as number 10 in August 1973. In 1962, Monster Mash spent 12 weeks in the Top 40. Seven of those weeks were in the Top 10, with two of those, of course, at number 1. While the record was all the rage in the U.S. in 1962, it was actually banned by the BBC in England for being too morbid. The song wasn't popular there until that 1973 re-release, and it soared to the number three spot on the British charts. Bobby Boris Pickett placed one other song in the top 40. That happened in December 1962 with the song Monster's Holiday. 
That song reached its peak of number 30 in the first week of January 1963. Monster's Holiday rose all the way up to number 18 on the R&B chart in 1963. Pickett died of leukemia in 2007 at the age of 69, but on October 28, 1962, his novelty dance record, Monster Mash, was the number one song in the U.S. And those were the top 10 songs for October 28, 1962, the day the world stepped back from potential nuclear war with the peaceful conclusion of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I hope you enjoyed our countdown. Did you hear anything in this episode that brought back a memory? If so, please share it. Send me a note to memory at spokenjoe.com. Episodes of Memory and Top 40 Music are available on Radio Public, iTunes, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and some feedback while you're there, and please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to listen to this episode's companion playlist on Spotify. Thanks for listening to Memory and Top 40 Music. I'm Spoken Joe. See you next time.